Welcome to all the listeners tuning into the very first episode of the Chelsea FC 365 podcast. This podcast will be taking place starting today with special guests featuring all during the summer transfer window and beyond. Chelsea FC 365 is constantly looking at ways to expand and the team has decided to create this podcast. I'm going to be your host for the episodes, but we'll have other members from the 365 team that you haven't met yet, but you will be meeting also joining me on the future episodes. Our first guest today is someone that has just done an incredible job, really, throughout the whole Chelsea takeover process and has worked for and with some of the biggest outlets in the world, currently with CBS Sports. Ben Jacobs, would you like to say a quick hello to the, to the listeners? Yeah, good afternoon. There's pressure going first on a brand new podcast, isn't there? But as I kind of said on Twitter in the promotion for this, I am officially the greatest ever guest that you've had because I'm the only guest that you've had to date. But hopefully we can get off to a good start and it's always been fun engaging with Chelsea fans during what's been a bit of a dramatic and complicated process and always welcome of questions from fans and supporters and let's hope from Chelsea's point of view that we're sort of down the home stretch now and the takeover's only a couple of weeks away. It should be smooth sailing from here. 100%. I think one of the best things that you've done throughout this whole takeover process is obviously like you write articles as well, but you've been doing these long sort of 10 to 15, sometimes even long tweet threads that are just jam-packed of information and every time you put one out I'm just like right let's dive into this because there's not often like journalists and, and you know people with influence on Twitter that will kind of you know do these long tweet threads like I've not really seen it before it's always in an article mostly behind a paywall so like I really appreciate that you've been giving this in-depth information to us throughout this whole process and just hope you continue to do so really as well because like I, I've been reporting on Chelsea not as, as a journalist or anything but just covering the news on my page for like the last year or so and like correct me if I'm wrong but like I've not really seen you in terms of Chelsea news as much but like the whole takeover situation like yeah you've just been amazing so again thanks for that as well. No absolute pleasure I mean I think journalism's changing and the need for multi-platform storytelling has been apparent for probably the last five years these platforms have come and gone and I think that journalists have found different mediums to try and get their points across and dot com or online is one aspect of that but I'm a broadcaster by trade so I input into things like CBS Sports HQ I'm a football commentator and yes I'll write on dot com when a story requires that kind of depth but when you're a broadcaster you learn naturally to do short form via platforms like Instagram or TikTok or just little hits into our linear output, our live broadcasts on CBS Sports HQ. And CBS, of course, have things like the Champions League and Serie A. And then you use Twitter and other platforms to break information in a more condensed way for two reasons. One, because it doesn't always warrant an in-depth dot-com article if that's not your day-to-day -day trade. And two, because it gives you a different opportunity to engage directly with fan bases. And I'm not against paywalls or just traditional online writing. I think that that's very valuable when you can gather information, especially if you're on the beat day-to-day. -day. So you've got that relationship where you have to generate a range of Chelsea or football content constantly but CBS are obviously global we've got a huge diversity of rights and stories that we follow in the men and the women's game so when you get a kind of opportunity to have more of a direct voice with a fan base via as you say a thread like Twitter 
that can be very useful in both answering questions, but also determining exactly what your audience wants. And in the case of the Chelsea takeover, I think the fans specifically, but the wider audience within football, much like when I covered the Newcastle United takeover, they want clarity. And the best way that you learn what that clarity is, is by talking to fans directly. And sometimes what a fan wants to hear or find out is slightly different to the story path that you were chasing. And that's why it's such a two-way process. And it's been a pleasure engaging with Chelsea fans. Traditionally, I focus on investigative journalism. So my last story before the Chelsea takeover was out in Afghanistan, investigating allegations of sexual abuse from the head of the Afghan FA against members of the Afghan women's national team. And we were working with a variety of parties to try and get justice for those footballers. And thankfully, we were successful. And I've written stuff extensively about piracy in Saudi Arabia in the context of the Newcastle United takeover. So really, I focus on the business of sport predominantly, and that includes takeovers. And naturally, therefore, when you combine my speciality in takeovers and the business of sport with the fact that virtually all of the suitors from start to finish in this process, including obviously the Clear Lake Bowley Group, had American links and CBS is an American broadcaster. I was fortunate in the sense that I was well positioned to dig quite deep with this particular story. Yeah, exactly. And we'll have a little plug-in session at the end. But um, yeah, I was reading your website and some of the stuff you've done and the people you've met and the companies and outlets that you've worked for is truly amazing. So um, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely talk more about that at the end. But Let's, um, let's start this off then, um, then with kind of the first sort of topic of, of a few we have here. Um, so we're going to talk about obviously Todd Bowley's consortium, which we understand that from your reporting and others as well, um, mainly from the Chelsea side, really, I, I kind of follow Matt Law um, from The Telegraph, Nizar Kinsella and also The Athletic, Simon Johnson and Liam Toomey, which the listeners will be well aware of. So as I said, we understand the two main big players are I believe, is it Bedad Egbali? Is that how you say his name? Hoping so. <laughs> um, from Clear Lake. <laughs> and Bowley himself, obviously. They've seemingly won the race now. Um, and, yeah, sources suggested that they were favourites from day one, really. That's all that I've been really reading. Obviously, we had Sir Jim Ratcliffe come in late. We also had, obviously, the Ricketts and, and Griffin bid, which was um, quite interesting, to say the least, because I know a lot of Chelsea fans, including myself, really weren't keen on them um, at the time. And, and of course, I was I was willing to listen to, obviously, what their party and, and what their, their team and consortium had to offer. But I was more keen on Bowley from the things that I've read. So, Ben, what is kind of left to do now before they officially take over? Because obviously, we've, we're, Chelsea fans are kind of getting excited now because we've seen Bowley at the game. You know, I, I was at the game against Wolves and I could see him up in his box. He was very engaged. So I was like, this is done, right? But it, it's clearly not because, you know, inform us then how what is what is left to do now before um, they officially are announced as Chelsea owners I guess it's a good question so the process essentially is the shortlisting of bidders through to final offers through to a preferred bidder that preferred bidder enters the period of exclusivity which we've had and then after that if at the end of it as they've done a purchase agreement is signed most of the formalities are done because crucially the parties have actually agreed terms of sale inclusive of things like a price and obviously any other sticking points that they've gone back and forth on including that the majority owner clear lake capital cannot sell that majority stake until at the earliest 2032 so everything's then in place and then you have three broad next steps number one which would happen with any takeover 
is that the group must pass the Premier League's owners and directors test. And because the Premier League wanted a fast sale and knew the urgency of it, they'd already soft vetted the listed directors and looked into any what's called shadow directors, which are people that are not listed, but could potentially hold influence over Chelsea Football Club through the consortium. And the other aspect of the Premier League owners and directors test, very loosely speaking, is an assessment of business plans over three years. So the Premier League can, in essence, line everything up. And they've intimated for a number of weeks now, not just to the Clear Lake Bowley group, but to all of the three final suitors, that each of them would have no problems passing the owners and directors test. But all they can really do is soft clear until a purchase agreement is signed. And the reason for that is, first of all, because following the lengthy Newcastle United takeover, the Premier League need to be seen to do this by the book and transparently in case there's any scrutiny from Newcastle or other clubs. And in light of the fact that the fan-led review, which Tracy Crouch was obviously leading on, has made it clear that she and feedback received believes that the Premier League needs an independent regulator. So the last thing they want to do is take any shortcuts or essentially go against their listed process, at least officially, and then find that it comes back to haunt them in the future. So as with any takeover, they can be helpful in preparing all of the aspects of the Premier League's owners and directors test in advance to make sure it's carried out as fast as possible. But Chelsea can only formally submit that after a purchase agreement has been signed. And the main reason for that is because if you're having your business plans looked at, but you're still negotiating the terms of the deal and ultimately determining whether it is or isn't a debt-free purchase, then your business plans simply cannot be locked, which means the Premier League can't clear them. So that is why the process has to be purchase agreement first, then a formal clearance from the Premier League. But the group will pass that owners and directors test and that will be confirmed to them this week. It's only going to take a matter of days. Premier League sources even last week had intimated to me that they'd need no more than seven days. And we're already, at the time of speaking, four or five days beyond that point. So my understanding is that at some point this week, the Premier League owners and directors test will be passed and there are no hurdles or red flags, if you like. So that's a pure formality. And then the second thing is the government licensing the sale. And because the debt and the sale have effectively been separated, the government will also very quickly be able to sign off the sale. But the challenge, and I don't think this has been reported enough really, is that the government have been kept in the loop of the process and the government have been controlling Chelsea's special license. But the government have not seen any of the paperwork up until about a week ago. So this isn't a case of the government being kept in the loop with all the ins and outs and share splits and makeups and business plans and funding strategies all the way through, even though there's one or two people in the clearly Bolate consortium that have obviously got good government relationships. But there is a process and it's very rigid because, again, the government, much like the Premier League, can come under some kind of retrospective scrutiny and they have to make sure that they've played it by the book. So the documentation around the deal was only given to the government around about a week ago. And as a consequence, they still have to go through all of that to make sure that there's no further clarifications in formal talks 
will probably mitigate any problems. And DCMS sources have always told me that they expect to clear the Chelsea sale after they receive the official documentation within two weeks. So if you're looking at a roadmap without any hurdles, then the Premier League will pass the owners and directors test this week. Next week, the government will license the sale. They'll deal with the debt in a frozen account separately, which gets rid of another problem. And then once those two boxes are ticked, and I do understand that they are formalities to some extent, perhaps the government licensing the sale will take a little bit more time and more questioning but the Premier League will have no problems passing this consortium because, as I said before, they've already done the legwork. So you've got the owners and directors test first, then the government license the sale, and then after that, the group can formally transfer the full balance of funds, at which point they own the football club. So it's highly likely with a deadline looming of the 31st of May and the government saying that they won't extend Chelsea's special license beyond that, that that's the latest when obviously the group would like to be able to assume control. But based on sources that I'm talking to, they expect to be through the door 100% around a week before that. So their target is the end of the season on the 22nd of May or before. And it would be a real boost, of course, wouldn't it, to be able to announce it a day or two before that final game of the season and then give everyone peace of mind and hopefully have Chelsea able to celebrate Champions League football and new owners and everybody heading then into the end of May and the transfer window opening buoyant and feeling like the transitional process is already in full flow. So that's the aim. But if they're delayed a little bit, there's that leeway there because the Premier League, the government, the Clear Lake Bowley group and Chelsea are all saying they feel comfortable of getting it done before May the 31st and probably a week before May the 31st. So then they've still got that extra few days if anything untoward happens and they need a little bit more time. Okay, yeah, that's all very interesting. I think as well, like you mentioned about the Premier League soft betting, the consortium, the names within that. Like it seems to me that... I don't know about what you think, but in terms of other takeovers, Chelsea fans have obviously been engaging on my Twitter and saying, you know, oh, this is going on forever. This is taking so long. But from my point of view, the way I see it and the way you're describing things is like this is actually fairly quick um, compared to other takeovers. I mean, it kind of has to be as well, because obviously you mentioned the fact that the 31st of, of May is the deadline for the licence and um, you, you believe that they won't, uh, or the government have said they won't, you know, change it or, or something. So that is the actual deadline. So for me, it seems like quite of a fast sale. Um, I know it's there's been a lot of like changes within within it and, you know, a lot of new names coming in and things like that. But, um, you know, a lot, of, again, a, a few weeks ago, Ben, I, I think one thing that fans were getting annoyed with was that there was all these deadlines, you know, oh, this week is going to be, you know, this week, this week, this week. And it came to, it really seemed to keep changing in terms of like the deadlines for things. But now we have that clear roadmap, as you said, like it should be really good. Um, and hopefully that the takeover will, will be completed soon. Um, so yeah, thank you for that information. So I just wanted to ask you as well, quickly, like, while we're on this, um, well, we're going to be continuing on to the takeover stuff, but really I wanted to ask you about Roman Abramovich's role in all this because, again, Abramovich is not really someone we hear from. Obviously, we had the statement from Roman Abramovich a little while ago as well. Chelsea posted out that, you know, clarifying a few things. He, he didn't want the one point, I believe, six billion in debt. So, um, you know, repaid to him because there was rumours of that. So what has his role been in all this? Um, If you could quickly summarise it and also like, um, I wanted to ask you, the anti-Glazer clauses that were supposedly put onto this deal, 
towards the end. Um, from a fan's point of view, that seems very, very good because you know it means that they can't do certain things such as like pay dividends. I, I believe it stops the amount of debt they can load onto the club. Obviously, they can't sell it until 2032. So this all seems really, really good and, and a great move from Roman to protect Chelsea's long-term interests. So what is your view on, on what um, Roman Abramovich has been doing and also your personal opinion or, or intel you can share on the anti-Glazer clauses? Do you believe this is something that Roman would have put in for, say, a Sir Jim Ratcliffe or... Uh, I don't know, Ricketts Griffin, if they won, or, or do you believe it's because of Clear Lake? You know, they 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 are a private equity firm. Um, obviously, they they prioritise usually in return on investment. So maybe Roman has seen this kind of, um, or how they usually operate, and think right, we have to put some sort of clauses in play to to protect Chelsea's long term interests. Well, I think first of all, it's important to note that with Abramovich under sanctions, he hasn't had a hands-on approach to this sale so although he as the seller is able to engage indirectly there's been no conversations for example between any of the suitors and Abramovich but obviously he's got various conduits if you like including Bruce Buck so it's very clear that he has had an influence on the amount of money that he wants the club to sell for even though none of it will go directly to him but also the legacy as well. And that's obviously reassuring for Chelsea fans, because if you look at it from a Bramovich point of view, take out the sentiment, what does he have to gain at the moment by selling Chelsea Football Club? Absolutely nothing financially, but he's well aware that if the sale doesn't happen, the club could go out of business. And he doesn't want that because then his legacy becomes the roadblock to a sale, which meant that Chelsea potentially, in a worst-case scenario, no longer existed. And Roman Abramovich has obviously got a huge amount of affection for Chelsea, and he's come in with almost a non-business-like approach to begin with in the manner in which he's spent, blown the rest of the market out of the water, being cutthroat in order to win trophies. And I think over time, he's adapted and evolved to the business landscape of football because unfortunately when he first came in at the football club he could pretty much spend freely and build foundations but other clubs have implemented new structures other owners have come in with the same weight of money financial fair play has leveled things somewhat and so has the premier league sustainability and profit rules so abramovich has had to adapt and i think he's been well aware from what i understand throughout this process that from a strategy point of view even though he obviously didn't want to leave chelsea at the time that he did he's completely aware that the sale is a good thing because it provides a sustainable owner and it moves chelsea on and make no mistake, if the war in Ukraine hadn't happened, we know historically that Abramovich was open to a sale because I think he'd reached a point where he saw his own strategy as being a little bit untenable or unsustainable, which is why with a number of the suitors in 2018 and 2019, he'd explored the possibility of a sale before. He didn't agree a price with Sir Jim Ratcliffe. We know also that the Ricketts family had explored Chelsea in 2018 as well. So Abramovich, I think, has been putting out feelers to work out what Chelsea's future was going to look like long, long before he was forced to sell the football club at speed. And as a consequence, he's had in his mind a roadmap for what a sale might look like 
who he might use, specifically Rain Group, how Bruce Buck would facilitate the process and what Chelsea were looking for. And therefore, when you talk about the terms specifically, I don't think many of them, if any of them, have been warped to be specific to any particular suitor. Of course, when you're Bowley Clear Lake and you enter into a period of exclusivity, you're the only one left. So a certain back and forth based on the specifics of their plan will definitely have taken place. And certain clauses or requests from both parties will be unique to those discussions during the period of exclusivity. But if you look at the broad ones, which are the redevelopment of Stamford Bridge and the general modernisation of the football club, how much they're going to spend, how much debt they can borrow, and whether or not the majority owner is going to stick around. They were definitely requests from Chelsea to every single suitor. Each of them were asked to provide those guarantees that they would invest the same amount into the football club on top of the sale price, that they would keep certain staff through at least a transitional period in order to create continuity, that they would invest in the men and the women's team, that they wouldn't implement a borrowing-led strategy, which obviously isn't particularly sustainable, and that they would respect the heritage of the football club and engage with the fan base. And it's a little bit ironic in some senses because Abramovich didn't do all of these things. He employed David Hickey, a project manager, to try and get a Stamford Bridge redevelopment off the ground, and it never happened. He never engaged with the fan base or the media. Abramovich never really warmed to any kind of publicity around Chelsea. He never significantly took the brand to new sponsors or regions. And then what you have in Bowley is sort of an anti-Abramovich in terms of his demeanour, in terms of his personality. And as you correctly say, when we saw him in the Wolves game, he lived every single emotion practically that you can go through as a Chelsea fan in the space of 90 minutes. And his reactions in the still photography show you all of that. But he's personable. He's conscious of the brand and the football club. And I think the big difference between Abramovich and Bowley is that Bowley as minority owner has not, come to the table trying to buy Chelsea with any kind of ego. Instead, he realised as an individual, there was no value for him in being the majority owner. And Hans-Jörg Weiss said the same thing. So they partnered. Then they found Clearlake, who were always in place as the majority owner. So some Chelsea fans were surprised by that, but Clearlake were always going to be the majority owner. And the only thing that's changed is their initial share split of 66% has been reduced by 6% to 60%, as I understand it. But that was always the plan, because again, they see value in having control over particularly Bowley, the operational side of the club, and they see value in growing the business, and they see value in developing the football club on the field. And all of that allows them to effectively have day-to-day -day control with slightly less, if you like, financial risk. And then Clear Lake see value in having their dad who will sit on the board and be very active in financial decisions. And also during the pitching process has had a big role to play on the development of strategy 
and also been a pretty vocal voice on the football side and the redevelopment plans as well. But they're there to ultimately ensure that Chelsea are a sustainable business. And then in addition to all of the names I've mentioned, you've got the pivotal figure of Jonathan Goldstein, who won't sit on the board to begin with, but is in essence the right-hand man of Todd Bowley. And he's the CEO of Kane Group and Bowley Park owns Canes. They've worked together before. But Johnny Goldstein is there because he can actually be part of the day-to-day. And that's important because he's the one that knows football. He's the one that can lead on the redevelopment. He's the one with the contacts in the UK. And that will allow Bowley to sort of come and go, be a key decision maker, but it won't fix him necessarily in London. But I fully expect Johnny Goldstein to kind of be the glue that holds everything together around the other board members and key influencers. And I say that because when you compare that to Abramovich, what you've got is a team. And within that team, you've got a series of experts in each area. You've got investment experts, you've got business experts, you've got development experts, you've got football experts, all of which have worked together, or most of them anyway, and there's no ego behind that. So they're going to work well together, they're going to delegate when possible, and they're going to respect the club's existing hierarchy and heritage, at least over a transitional period. And I think that's the selling point of that bid that they can take Chelsea into a new sustainable era, far more sustainable than Abramovich's business plan. They can be more transparent. They can engage with the fan base. And their task in doing all of that is to try somehow on that strategy and maintain things on the football side as well. And I think Abramovich looking at that, or Bruce Buck via Abramovich looking at that, is going to have been very impressed Because what he wants from a sale, knowing he's not getting any financial value, is to ensure that his legacy continues of success and trophies and even the redevelopment that he tried and never really got off the ground. So looking at that group, Abramovich will have, through Buck, stipulated certain things to ensure all of the different aspects that I mentioned happen. And that's why he said to Clear Lake Bowley, via Buck, because as I say, no official engagement, if you like, but it's clear, obviously, that as the seller, he will have a view and can make certain demands. And if he just said, I'm not selling, then that would be that. So he does have an element of control here. But Abramovich, to all the suitors, made it very clear through his people in Rain Group and the process that they must show a long-term commitment to Chelsea, that they must not rack up debt, and they must get the redevelopment sorted. And then the fourth aspect, like I say, which is harder to define, is just how are you going to maintain success on the football field? So those are the kind of core four elements to everyone. And then with Bowley and Clear Lake in particular, there was a bit of extra back and forth about what role Clear Lake would play and how would their influence change the football club because not every sports league likes private equity firms being involved, especially not as a majority owner. So there was sort of some due diligence on both parts in that respect. The Clear Lake Bowley Group had to do their due diligence and they couldn't facilitate all of it because ultimately, due to the sanctions against Abramovich, it's very difficult at speed to determine everything you need to in such a short period of time when all of the skeletons in the closet, if you like, for want of a better phrase, can't actually be seen. So Chelsea will 
do their best to try and provide the information that Clear Lake Foley wanted and other suitors, but there's absolutely no guarantees due to the sanctions that they can open every single door and shed every aspect currently of the club's operation, because if Abramovich influences it, then they wouldn't necessarily be able to see that part of the business. And Rain Group said very openly, for example, that those asking for more information about Camberley wouldn't be able to get it because even Rain Group didn't have that information. But it works the other way around as well. So Chelsea in the bidding process and Rain Group were equally as intent to work out what the share split was specifically within Clear Lake and where their money and investment came from. So that's kind of the key that the period of exclusivity is present to iron out each of the kind of clarifications or questions needed to get the sale over the line. And now that's out the way, Abramovich probably won't have any significant role from this point onwards. The new ownership group will come in and the only time we may hear his name affiliated to Takeover Talk will be specific to the foundation through which funds are going to be channeled and the clarity over where the sale funds will eventually end up. And after a new ownership group comes in, it wouldn't at all surprise me from a PR point of view if we hear again from Abramovich, because he obviously doesn't just want to protect Chelsea and help the sale. He, in addition to that, wants to make sure that if he's not going to get anything from the sale, that money goes to a worthy cause. And it's clear that he's a part of that because that's the right thing to do. And also it's good PR for him. And that's when I think he'll come back into the conversation over the course of the coming months or even potentially longer when finally there's a bit more specifics and clarity over where the sale funds will go. Oh, yeah, that's all really, really interesting as well. Like, it seems like this consortium, um, in particular, compared to others, it seems like, as you said, they've got experts everywhere and it's all been kind of well planned out. They've all been partners or worked together before. So, the sustainability aspect is something that I'm really, really looking forward to. Um, I know a lot of fans as well. Um, just talking about Marina and Bruce Bucknell, Ben, is, um, well, I mean, a lot of fans don't mind that Marina and Buck will stay for a so called transitional period, but for me personally, my personal opinion, I know this has been shared throughout as well. Like we want to see um, someone, maybe perhaps a director of football come in because I know a lot of fans obviously appreciate Marina's business sense and, and some of the deals that she has pulled off. But as well, like there's been a lot of players that have been bought for different systems and, um, you know, different style of managers that, you know, like let's take Thomas Tuchel's team, for example. I think there's eight or nine Frank Lampard players. There's a couple of Conte players. So do you believe Bowley eventually will allow um, someone, perhaps if Marina does leave, like a director of football to come in to basically essentially work with Tuchel and to kind of build around him? Because as well, like we've kind of seen Bowley use the phrase before. I think he said once, hire the best, let them do the rest. I think that was his saying before. Um, I think he did an interview about that on the LA Dodgers. So on Bruce Buck and Marina, do you have any intel to share regarding their futures um, quickly? And, and basically the, the answer to my second question as well is like, do you eventually think if Marina was to leave, a director of football would come into to the club? I think that the group haven't necessarily assessed the structure of the club. So they've got two challenges. One is to assess existing personnel and then two to determine how that personnel fit into their structure. And obviously if they change the structure 
around recruitment. For example, they could move in a Liverpool-like direction and establish a transfer committee, then that can define who you appoint. So what we're going to see is quite a slow-moving process, which is to be expected because we're coming to the end of a season. So the priorities will be to resolve existing contracts and then finalise any ongoing transfer business that predates the Clear Lake Bowley Consortium. And to do that, collaboration will naturally be needed with Marina and Buck. And in addition to that, direct engagement, which hasn't happened yet, but will with Thomas Tuchel and Emma Hayes as well. And luckily, because of the timing in which they've entered, there's actually the ability over the transfer window to still try and continue the existing recruitment strategy in terms of incomings and outgoings, whilst at the same time preparing whatever the new structure is, even if it doesn't change that significantly, there'll definitely be tweaks to the setup and how Chelsea operate and who reports to who and who are obviously the final decision makers and so on. And all of that will be geared towards the following transfer window over the winter. And it's actually quite a good time, therefore, to use the summer period to assess what you've got and then make changes. So there's sort of two phases to it. One, as I say, is making sure that there's a smooth transition. And then once you're in, from that point, determining where changes are needed behind the scenes at executive level. And if actually a foundational change is needed to the way that Chelsea recruit players. And from what I understand, the big thing about Bowley is he's a people person and he wants fits. So it's more important that when you recruit a player all the way through to, let's say, a kit man or a match day steward, it's more important when you recruit that you bring in the right fit. And Chelsea's problem with players is that Abramovich was cutthroat and each manager that came in was allowed to sign a player for that manager. And then when a new manager comes in, you get a lot of players that don't fit into the system or feel like they're loose ends. And Chelsea, obviously, have got a big squad. And then suddenly the egos start rubbing against each other. You get unhappy names, players that are loaned out. And there's perhaps not as many pathways back to the first team. So I think within the recruitment, you're definitely going to see first and foremost, a move towards recruiting strategically and sensibly in a manner that provides longevity, regardless of who the manager is and regardless of who the executives are. And that's the kind of long-term plan. In the short term, the group with not as much football experience as, let's say, Paluka or Jim Ratcliffe, because they've actually been directly involved in the game, will want to determine what they've got. And they can't really do that at every level of the football club until they're through the door. And to stress again, that's why Jonathan Goldstein is so important, because he does have football background and knowledge and network, and he will be able to determine on a day-to-day -day working alongside Bowley exactly what he thinks is or isn't needed. Specifically then on Buck, and Marina is an interesting one because you have to take absolutely everything at this stage with a massive pinch of salt. And the reason for that is because you're pitching to buy a football club and Buck is part of that process. And you are never, when you are trying to buy a football club, 
going to say publicly or privately that people who are pivotal to the decision-making process will not have a job because if you do you're not playing the game and then once you get through the door which hasn't happened yet you've got the control and at that point you can decide whether what you said in the bidding process is actually your real approach or if that was just a box tick thing to make clear in order to stand the best possible chance of winning and that is just business the people sort of speculating now about the buck and marina situation are potentially jumping the gun a little bit what we know for sure is that Bowley clear lake want buck and marina through a transitional period so what i know from talking to sources is that Bowley clear lake are definitely intent on having a smooth transitional period and also assessing the talent at the football club on and off the field before making any decisions which means that they'll come through the door and they will keep all senior people and no doubt everybody at the football club in a job during the transitional period until they assess exactly what they've got and what's right for the football club and what fits into their strategy and ultimately business model and that makes total sense so therefore when people say that buck and marina are staying it's true in the sense that they will be there for a transitional period but they shouldn't necessarily always be treated as the same and a duo because in marina's case she is incredibly well liked by Bowley Clearlake. So talking to sources, I believe it's fair to say that they want to keep her in the long term. But the challenge with Marina is that she, for a couple of decades, has been so ingrained to Abramovich, I think it will be more whether she wishes to stay. Because if it's up to Bowley Clearlake, I fully expect them to try and keep her in place. With Buck, it's a different scenario. First of all, because of his age, and second of all, because most new ownership groups, in my opinion, will want to pick their own chair. So beyond the transitional period, and whatever Chelsea say now, the long term is probably a bit more uncertain as far as Buck is concerned. So the official line is that they would like to keep Buck. And as I say, that's been consistent throughout the entire process. Now, interestingly, the Sir Martin Broughton bid had their own chair in waiting, which doesn't feel like the strongest of moves when, as I said before, you're pitching to buy a football club. And that could have potentially counted against them. So if they'd have come in, Bruce Buck would have been out of a job very quickly. But in the Clear Lake Bowley case, they've always said, that they value Buck and they will keep him at worst through a transitional period. Beyond that, the future's unclear. Officially, they'll say that Buck is going to stay at the football club. But my sense is that Bowley himself would probably long run like to be the Chelsea chair. That's my feeling. Multiple sources have intimated that that is where he sees himself in the long run. So you sort of have two perspectives and you have to judge each at this point with a pinch of salt because the sale hasn't been done. So of course you're gonna hear that Buck and Marina are integral to the football club. 
then they're going to come in and Bucca Marina will be integral to the football club because it's not a wise strategic approach to get rid of either of them without having that transitional or handover period. And then beyond that, the real decisions will be made. And my understanding to reiterate is that if it's up to Bowley clearly, they want Marina to stay for the long term and they want to see how they go with Buck as well because they respect him and he's been an integral part of the process. But most new ownership groups talking broader than just Chelsea will want to pick their own chair. And given Buck's age and given Bowley's plans being so different to Abramovich's, it wouldn't at all surprise me, and I'm giving you my opinion rather than necessarily anything a source has said, it wouldn't at all surprise me personally if in the long run, Buck leaves after a transitional period to be defined. And it wouldn't remotely surprise me if the next Chelsea chair, should Buck depart, is actually Todd Bowley himself. But like I say, that is my opinion. And the official line remains that Buck is staying and that the football club very much value Marina and she will be part of a decision-making process. So that's a bit more two-way than Buck. Buck would like to stay, whereas from Marina's point of view, I don't think she's fully decided yet. So there you go, Chelsea fans. A lot of in, a lot of um, interesting information there, and I think the structural sort of um, positions will be very, very interesting to keep an eye on over the next few months, um, potentially into the next year. So yeah, as Ben said, they expect Bruce Bucker Marina to stay through a transitional period, as has been reported via multiple sources and reporters as well. So yeah, I fully expect that to happen. And and but then, as Ben said, there he he may. He suggested that maybe Tom Bowley will eventually become the Chelsea chairman. Who knows? But let's keep an eye on that Chelsea fan. So hopefully you've got the answer that you wanted there. That's very, very good there again from Ben. So so the last question, Ben, uh, the last sort of topic we're going to talk about um, is Tom Bowley again. <laughs> and we're going to talk about his summer transfer plans. What do you think will happen? I know there's already been a report um, from, again, someone who I like to mention, Matt Law, who kind of Chelsea fans trust very, very much, saying, that Todd Bowley plans to make significant funds available. Now, my question to you is, if this is true, how much would he actually be able to give to Chelsea, taking into regard FFP? Because you're more of a business guy than I am. Like, could, I mean, Thomas Tuchel said the other day, it's not going to be a case of where Bowley just goes 250 million. There you go, you know, go and spend that. Like, how much could Todd Bowley put into the club if he wanted to, like, realistically, taking into regard FFP and everything? Well, I think, first of all, within the Premier League's so-called profit and sustainability rules and UEFA's financial fair play, Chelsea are comfortably within that as things currently stand. So they're not necessarily on a threshold where they can't spend big. And in addition to that, what Bowley spends is likely to be framed around the same planned budget that Abramovich would have spent. So I don't foresee a scenario whereby Bowley has to do a lot of maths. I think it's far more logical and likely that Abramovich had allocated an amount in a perfect world where there were no sanctions. And if Chelsea could spend that based either upon wishful outgoings or incoming business freeing up money to spend, then that amount will be, I think, very similar to what Bowley ends up spending. I think that it's jumping the gun a little bit to assume that somebody in Bowley and the group that hasn't even yet directly met Thomas Tuchel has put a number on it. 
And I think that only during the period of exclusivity and maybe some of the due diligence before would the group probably under an NDA, if it happened, have got any real inkling of things like targets or plans in the market, because the last thing obviously you want to do is share that with multiple suitors, even under an NDA, and then find that there's people that know the inner workings of your summer plans. So I think that the Bowley Clear Lake group would probably admit to being somewhat in the dark as regards incomings, but I think they've got a clear sense of potential outgoings and it's been obvious over the last few weeks, if we start with the possible outgoings, that Tony Rudiger was a player that they wanted to keep, but it's been out of their control. And the same applies to Christiansen as well. Alonso is an interesting one, because if we'd have spoken before the Wolves game, then I would have reiterated what I said before, which is he's always been prepared to wait and engage with the new ownership group and had a desire to stay at the football club. But now there's friction between Alonso and Thomas Tuchel and things could obviously change accordingly. So that's a little bit up in the air. And then the other priorities that are less pressing in terms of these particular names going today or tomorrow or over the coming weeks, but are vital in terms of the longevity of the football club is nailing down these improved deals for the likes of Mason Mount, who I think the group see as a sort of future captain Reese James, Christian Pulisic, a big one simply because of the American links as well. And don't underestimate with an owner like Bowley and Clear Lake, not only further strengthening themselves in America, but also utilizing players more for brand purposes rather than just football purposes. And Pulisic has actually never been the most, and I don't mean this negatively, I just mean he's very humble, he focuses on his football. He's never really expanded his own personal brand and we don't see enough of him away from the football fields, but it wouldn't at all surprise me if the new ownership group try and kind of change that and naturally, as you'd expect, use him as a little bit of a poster boy as far as expansion and development in North America is concerned. And then there's a range of players on Chelsea women's side that fall into that category as well, because as Chelsea women strengthen, they can obviously recruit further from the NWSL. And it was really important for Chelsea over the kind of last year and a half or so to bring in the likes of Penilla Harder record signing Sam Kerr as well, because what we're seeing is the WSL and Chelsea specifically, perhaps to some extent, do what Abramovich did during the formative parts of his tenure at Chelsea on the men's side. And that is start to pull in the cream of the crop. And traditionally, six, seven years ago, we were not talking about the WSL as being the absolute peak in Europe or globally, but now there's sort of decisions to be made for the top players. We saw obviously Tobin Heath go to both Spurs and Arsenal, and there's other Americans with the US women's national team being the top women's international side. There's other players like that that have come over to the WSL. So if you're looking at US expansion, then the clearly Bolake group will see Chelsea women as a really strong opportunity to kind of create more of an affinity with the football market in America and Chelsea Football Club, where a lot of the American players or global players playing in the NWSL are box office. And if Chelsea can obviously get them over, that will help with growth as well. But the main thing first is about the names that are already at the football club. And then from that point onwards, it's how you're going to build a spine 
And to understand that and what the targets are, they'll obviously need Marina's input and Tuchel's input and Emma Hayes's input. And that hasn't happened yet. So it is to some extent true that they value, as I think I alluded to earlier, the right fits and players that have longevity. So you don't want to bring in a player that works under Tuchel that then will have no role or won't be a right fit under the next manager. And when, let's say, a change is needed, whoever replaces Tuchel will probably be more sensibly recruited to fit the style rather than a cutthroat appointment where you get a complete conflict of styles because that then has more chance of the players that you sign not being the right fit. And Bowley, as I said earlier, it is all about culture and people fit and that will happen with recruitment as well. So the few things that I know are on the transfer side that Declan Rice remains a target. I think Chelsea fans are well aware of that anyway. It's not necessarily true that an English spine is needed. I've seen kind of reports out there saying Harry Kane, Harry Maguire, the Maguire link is absolute nonsense. Uh, Harry Maguire. <laughs> I wouldn't want that at Chelsea, personally. <laughs> I don't think anybody would. So, yeah, you know, these kind of links are natural in the sense that it's a merry-go-round and agents talk and players become available and any top name, particularly if they're coming from the Premier League, Chelsea are bound to be linked with if it fits in a position where they're looking to strengthen. But I don't see it as being like that. Bowley, clear late for me, are once again all about delegation. So it's not going to be Bowley coming in and saying, I want X, Y and Z, at least not to begin with. It's not going to be Johnny Goldstein demanding that they raid Spurs being a Spurs fan <laughs> to try and get Harry Kane. These are just sort of speculation. But once again, they'll let everything at Chelsea tick over as is. So I don't think that you can say definitively that the first few signings that come in, even if it's using the money of Clear Lake Bowley, necessarily have that ownership group stamp on them. I think it's far more logical from sources I've spoken to to conclude that they will let the existing Chelsea infrastructure, Tuchel and Hayes included, make those decisions and support them financially where they can. So it wouldn't at all surprise me because Chelsea are not overly restricted by profit and sustainability rules or financial fair play. I wouldn't be remotely surprised if Chelsea are able to make four or five signings and spend well in excess of 150 million quid. And you'd expect that from a club like Chelsea Football Club. And that's probably within the allocated budget from the previous era. But what I don't think will happen is that anyone in the new ownership group will have a sort of foot down approach where they demand a name or they request a particular signing that wasn't already on Chelsea's radar because that's just not the way you walk into a football club you walk before you can run and that includes in the manner that you spend so then if you use Newcastle as a comparison they got taken over by a Saudi-led takeover by the public investment fund who many believed were linked to the Saudi Arabian government and what did they do during the first January transfer window when everyone said that they would somehow land Mbappe or Haaland, they signed Chris Wood. And I think that that shows you that before they even came in and through their manager, Eddie Howe, it's clear who the decision makers are because you're not going to get a Saudi Arabian 
quasi-government minister in their chairman, Yasser al-Rumiyan, with respect to him, having any clue about Chris Wood's qualities or Dan Burns' qualities, or probably even Kieran Trippier's qualities, all of which were sensible sidings to get Newcastle out of trouble. That comes from Howe, that comes from the director of football, that comes from people that were already at the football club, and I think it's exactly the same with Chelsea. So anyone they wanted before this ownership group, they will now go for with support of the ownership group, and the ownership group will be sure to instill a people culture-led approach to try and keep as many of the names that they want that are currently at the football club on both the men and the women's side, and then they'll build. And then when you'll really see an impact on the strategy of recruitment, in my opinion, will be the winter window. But make no mistake, there'll be money there to spend. But to reiterate, my understanding is that money will not be Bowley being like, I want to make an instant impact. Here's a ton of money you wouldn't have had anyway. I think he'll look to work on the projected spending budgets that Abramovich already had in place. Right, yeah, as well. You made a really good point there about Christian Pulisic earlier about sort of the way Bowley could use him as, you know, a US marketing tool almost. Obviously, he's still a good player and stuff, but he has had his inconsistencies with Chelsea. And I think some players um, are the same, likes of Hakim Ziyech, Timo Werner. I think as well, like this is why I don't see him going as well, because I kind of mentioned that we're going to US US this summer, USA this summer in the preseason tour. So, yeah, really, really good point there about Christian Pulisic. Now, just a last little thing before we wrap up, because I know you do have something else going on, another podcast to attend, guys. So not only has Ben come on mine, he's also going on another one, although albeit it is Arsenal. So you can let him know what you think about that as well <laughs> after this. But um, yeah, just the last thing, Ben, before we let you go and wrap up. So I wanted to ask you just a short answer, whatever you want to say. Um, is it safe to say that Chelsea have finally left the hiring fire mentality with managers behind with Roman Abramovich? Do you expect Todd Bowley to give Tuchel two, three, perhaps four years? Obviously, results is also important because if you're not getting results, you're gone anyway. That's the that's the nature of football. But if he is, you know, still winning trophies, pushing Liverpool, pushing Man City, improving the points every season, do you believe he'll be Tuchel will be the long term manager for Chelsea? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's nothing to suggest that clearly Bole are going to come in and be cutthroat. And the key points to remember is that the makeup of the group are not necessarily only about the football side of things. So they will delegate aspects of the football side, even though Bole will have operational control, but they're there to modernise the football club and be patient. So the priorities are around developing Stamford Bridge, investing in the academy to create pathways, further strengthening the women's team who have just won another brilliant WSL title and three in a row. And of course, ensuring that Chelsea Football Club are always in the Champions League or better and maintaining the men's side and developing all other aspects of the football club are going to be the priorities. And I think that there's a clear understanding that you don't do that by being cutthroat. So when you look at Klopp and Liverpool versus the Manchester United merry-go-round, you see a complete contrast historically, and you could argue Arsenal under Arteta now even, despite the fact that they've struggled to get into the Champions League in seasons gone by. He's been given time. So there's two models with bigger clubs in the Premier League, clearly. And 
this American group definitely don't want to fall into the trap of the Glazers. And with Abramovich, he sort of got away with it through a mixture of spending and savvy appointments, even though he was cutthroat. Because with Manchester United, they've been equally as cutthroat as Abramovich, but their appointments haven't worked out. Whereas with Abramovich, he's got rid of managers and through interims or permanent replacements has been able to find success. And then even after he's got that success, he's still moved some of them on. For example, Di Matteo, Avram Grant, Ancelotti, all of which were able to do things to a large extent, but the club was not stabilised. And I think the two S's are the fundamentals behind Clear Lake Bowley, on paper at least at the moment. And one is stability and one is sustainability. So stability is the football side of things to maintain things and be patient and not make rash decisions when you've only just walked through the football club. And obviously with the ownership group being new, they'll keep Tuchel and he'll probably gain even more time than he would have done under Roman Abramovich simply because it's a fresh management and they respect him and they rate him. And he is, in essence, a top-class manager. So why are you going to change him? And if something goes wrong at Chelsea, I think there's a belief amongst this ownership group that that won't be pinned on Tuchel alone. And part of the, I think, reason for that is when you get an American-led consortium, they tend, at large, to have different layers of structure and therefore your manager is not always accountable for absolutely everything in the same way that we've been used to in English football. So if you take a baseball team like the Los Angeles Dodgers, if they're not doing that well, it doesn't necessarily mean that the head coach or the pitching coach or the batting coach will go. It might mean that they have to change their approach to who they draft but the GM may be accountable or other senior executives because there's lots of different levels with how the decision-making works. And that delegation and that splitting of responsibilities doesn't put a win or a loss only on the manager or coach's shoulders. And I think that Bowley will bring that baseball approach to Chelsea. So Tuca will be valued. And obviously, if there's issues on the field, issues with tactics, if there's things directly in his control, then like any manager, his tenure won't last. And it doesn't matter if you give a manager a one-day rolling contract or a decade-long contract. If he loses 10 straight games, he's very likely to be out of a job, especially at the level that Chelsea are playing, where they expect to win every single game that they play. But I don't see cutthroat being a word that underpins this particular ownership group. I think they will be understanding of the constraints against Tuchel. And I think that they will also be thinking long-term. So if they're gonna change the recruitment model, they're gonna change potentially some of the executives behind the scenes. They're gonna bring in new players and have a whole new strategy. All of that needs the stability of a manager. Otherwise, if you start that process, and then get rid of the manager, then you have to find somebody else that's a fit and re-educate what you're trying to do at the football club all over again. So I think defining Tuchel a bit like Klopp at Liverpool as you know a very public cog and a very integral cog, but still only a cog within a system is going to be very helpful. 
And Abramovich perhaps was guilty at times of employing a number of managers more in the Mourinho mold who had big reputations and histories of winning, but what they wanted from a football club they joined was control. So I don't see Chelsea under this new ownership group giving their manager as much control as Abramovich did. Like Abramovich was perverse in the sense that he offered you control, but if you went out of control even a little bit, he would wrestle it back off you and you were gone. And I think here's a little bit different. I think it will be a more structured behind the scenes model that puts less pressure on the manager and gives him more control over day-to-day -day training, football, tactics, and so on, but less control over the strategy on the football side, which will actually allow for longevity. So as long as Tuchel buys into that, like Klopp does at Liverpool, and realises that certain decisions will be discussed and delegated and his opinion will be counted, but so will others, as long as he likes that, enjoys that, and sees that as a model for success, then he is Chelsea's manager for the foreseeable future, as is Emma Hayes. Yeah, fantastic. That's Your answer there is really what I wanted to hear as well, because I think Tuchel, for my personal opinion, like he is the guy. Like I know we're going through a little bit of a, of a, of a bad period for results and stuff like that, and I know we haven't racked up as many points as we would like to um, this season, but I think just what he's had to deal with as well is, is just incredible. And, and it's good to hear that you believe Todd Bowley will take that into account, perhaps look at others as well um, as, as their actions should be held accountable as well. Because sometimes I feel like managers of Chelsea get left out to dry a little bit. Like one of the examples I make is Antonio Conte was came in, won the league um, in 2017. Then in 2018, obviously, he wanted reportedly wanted players like Alexandro, Lukaku, Nangolan, but we ended up giving him like likes of Morata, Bakayoko. Um, so you know, it's just can can everything be agreed upon? Like, can transfers? Can everyone just work together for once? Because I, I that's why I feel like maybe a change of strategy, a change of structure is needed because I just feel like some some things are a little bit you know kind of AWOL sometimes at Chelsea, and we just bring players in for the sake of it, the big names and stuff. So. Again, like I've been talking to Daniel Finkelstein, who is um, a part of, I think, believe a non-executive member of the board. And, you know, he's really, really good with the whole data analysis side of football. So I'm hoping, like, as you said, Bowley likes the right fit. He loves the fit. So I'm really hoping that Tuchel buys into that. And that's something that um, can ultimately lead to a better squad or a more um, structured squad, I should say, because Chelsea still have a very good squad. But anyway, Ben, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, would you like to just plug anything that that you may like to? I don't know, like uh, you have a website, for example. Obviously, you work for CBS. Like now's your moment, just to to plug anything. And if not, thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah, absolute pleasure, and good luck to Chelsea for the rest of the season. Apart from when you obviously play my team, Leicester. In terms of plugs, only just follow the CBS handles at CBS Sports Golasso, G-O-L-A-Z-O, CBS Sports Golasso. I think in terms of my own personal ones, never been that big on kind of plugging myself. The website link is on my at Jacobs Ben Twitter handle if anyone wants to click on it and see Mike Tyson biting off my ear and so on. But mostly just follow CBS. We like to be in depth and follow these kind of stories around the business of sport and hopefully we've been able to add something to the conversation over the last few months so yeah check out our handles we're on twitter instagram and tiktok all on that same handle at cbs sports Scholasso. 100 and with that being said thank you everyone for listening to this episode and again highly recommend what ben just said there 
following CBS Sports Galasso because they've also had Fabrizio Romano, I believe, on doing some Twitter clips and stuff. So I've seen them posting that. So, yeah, I follow them, man. Really, really good to keep an eye on. So, yeah, thank you, Ben, for joining me. And to everyone, till the next episode, I will see you next time.